Welcome to Witch, the women in technology creative industries hub, elevating the voices of women in tech. My name is Bishi, the founder of Witch. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a woman in tech about her work, journey, life, and process. In this episode, I'll be talking to artist, producer, and instrument maker Leah Mice about the path to becoming empowered by technology. Please do like, review, and subscribe. We're a new podcast, and every bit of support helps. Welcome to the Witch Podcast, Leah. Um, I understand you describe yourself as a multimedia artist and a multidisciplinary artist whose works range from live performance, composition, instrument design, installations, and interactive sculpture to academic papers. How did you first start exploring music with technology? So I come from a background of playing music just with friends in garages, playing guitars and basses and things. And then when I wanted to start a solo project, it was natural to start learning all of the music technology because I wanted to play all of the instruments and produce it myself. So it was trial by fire, really. I made my whole first album using GarageBand, even the internal microphone, because I did have a vocal microphone, but I was so scared of technology that it would slow me down so much just to even plug the microphone into an interface. So I've been doing my solo project for 10 years now. And yeah, it's been just like 10 years of baby steps of overcoming fear, learning more about technology, trying to create while I'm learning. And now I've gotten to a point where I am building my own technology but it, was, it wasn't an easy path. <laughs> Can you expand anything on the issue of overcoming fear step by step? I think that's really interesting. When I began, I would get into my studio and which at the time I just called it a practice space, but now I've collected enough gear that I believe it's a studio. I would get in and just be blank and not be able to begin. And it just got down to a point where I was getting an opportunity to release my music and I just had to do it. So I just had to set myself challenges like, okay, now you're going to finish this track. And for my second album, I said, okay, now you're going to change over to Ableton Live. So I just never opened GarageBand ever again and installed Ableton Live and then had to just push myself into learning it. The fear I'm still learning how to overcome, but I am now recognizing when I'm completely frozen and just sitting in the space with all of the tools to be able to use it and frozen, I recognize I'm in fear. And to get out of fear is a combination of information that I need. So maybe it's like, I don't know if I'm doing it correctly, so I need more information about whether I'm doing it correctly or it might be just coming to terms with like, am I going to do this or not? Am I going to let myself just not do this? And the answer is always no, like I'm going to do this. So just like forcing myself to take the next tiny step. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I've had that relationship to technology as well, but I've been really scared and I've really convinced myself that I'm unable to learn something or something is beyond reach. And I definitely think the world of, YouTube tutorials and how how artists and how practitioners share information in the digital age has really shifted that. But 
I'm aware of how self-made those barriers were in my mind. Whereas I think if I just sat down and just deconstructed a few manuals or, you know, I, I started using logic when I was in my teens. And I think I would have got a lot further, quicker, had I not been confronted with this issue. And I'm trying to figure out how much of that is societal and how much of that have I just purely made up in my head. Well, part of why I went to become a solo artist in the first place was I wasn't getting ahead on the technology because as soon as there was someone else in the room, they'd sort of be like, oh, let me take control of that. You go stand over there. I can do it faster. And I just wasn't in a position where I could learn then because I wasn't the person touching the computer. So I had to really lock everyone else out of that space and be like, I'm doing it. The growing pains are going to really hurt, but I need to do this for myself, for my own creative output. I want to make these decisions that are being made because there are like hundreds of decisions that you're making when you're the person touching the machine. Absolutely. And I know you're a filmmaker. So did you study filmmaking? Yeah. And actually I've just been thinking about this recently. So my first degree is in filmmaking. I love editing film and using Final Cut Pro and Premiere Pro. And I don't have the same fear with that. And it might be because I started out making film and I'm always incorporating film now in what I do. And all of the film stuff comes so naturally without this fear that I have with the music technology. What's kind of amazing about music, especially right now, is like how it incorporates film, it incorporates AV, it incorporates interactive technology. Like it's so multidisciplinary. Yeah, I guess maybe because I was making videos and video art and things when I was a teenager, it's sort of second nature to me in a way before I got self-conscious. And did you grow up studying music? Did you study it as a child or like was it around or? Yeah, I studied piano from when I was really young maybe four, but we had a piano in the house and everyone in the house was playing piano. So yeah, there's photos of me as a baby reaching up to touch the piano. That's gorgeous. Yeah, we had an organ in the house, like one of those multi-tier one with a like, little drum machine type thing. And I used to just play on that along with the little drum machine. <laughs> and I learned trumpet for about six years. And then everything I've taught myself after that, guitar and bass and all synth stuff and programming drum machines and things. But it sort of, yeah, it came from that classical background, yeah. And what were the first pieces of music multimedia that really inspired you? Like, for example, in my teens, I discovered Bruce Neumann and Laurie Anderson and Christian Mark Lee, and I really understood, like, music, technology, kind of reaching out into some almost like a fifth dimension. And that's what really shifted, like one of the like underlying building blocks of which is seeing music and performance and technology as something which is interdisciplinary, which seems like second nature for me, but is a concept I have to re-explain to people constantly. And when you use those you know, when you use examples like Kraftwerk or David Bowie or people who are so mainstream, it's like people are still really baffled by this concept of, of music and technology being an interdisciplinary form. But anyway, that's enough about me. <laughs> Can you remember the pieces that really spoke to you? I think Björk was a really huge influence being a producer herself, but also always pushing the boundary of different 
styles, not getting stuck down in one genre in an era where everyone was, what genre are you? Being so multidisciplinary and artistic in every way. One of my earliest influences as an instrument designer was the instruments that were designed for her by Ophelia Tour, the really large gravity harp. They're robotically performed, extremely large instruments. And these gave me the idea for, well, I want to create really large instruments that you actually physically, gesturally perform on stage. I don't know where I'm going with this thought, but being an artist is a dialogue that's ever going, or it's like a Someone has an idea and someone else like gets an idea of that and someone else gets an idea of that and that's how we move forward. Yeah, it's a little bit like the Brian Eno concept of being seniors rather than being a genius. You're seniors, which I really love that, which is where you gain inspiration from other people, other artists. And I think in I think it was a six music lecture and I think he was talking about how the 21st century was about being seniors and yeah, Mr. Eno, nice one. I love that idea of the seniors. And I think it's really important to sort of bring everyone together for the greater good of making better and better projects together. I think the idea of seniors kind of eliminates competition and really just brings the scene closer together. Absolutely, absolutely. But before we talk about your amazing instrument design and your PhD, I'd love to know a little bit more about your album, The Sampler is Time Machine, which is out on Optimo Music. What was the idea behind this album? Going back to what we were saying about fear and learning new technology, I did a lot of research on what technology I wanted to use live because I wanted to be able to perform a live set without other band members. And I realized the one piece of technology that would let me do that is the Octatrack. It has inputs that can take different instruments and you can live sample and then it can change and warp the samples all together. And it just offers the next level of what I had been using before, which was looping pedals. So I got this Octatrack and it sat on my desk for months because I had fear of learning how to use it. And I had an Ableton push, which is just so, it's just so easy to use straight out of the box. So I had to put the push away, never touch it again. I haven't, I have have it now and I'm using it for my next album, but put that away so that I wouldn't just start using that and use this sampler and So I wanted to make this album about the sampler as a challenge to force myself to learn the sampler as deeply as possible so that I could become really fluent with it live. And conceptually, I was reading a lot of time travel and kind of books, science fiction books, and I was thinking about how recording, playing back recordings, I mean, this is all a form of like time travel into the past to where it was recorded, bringing the past forward into the present, generating the future. And it sort of spoke to me a bit about memory, imagination, and this is the way that we use our minds to time travel. And yeah, I just got really nerdy and read heaps of books on time travel and tried to emulate those concepts using the sampler. And that was the whole premise for the album. And it gave me a really fun, abstract side door entry to learning how to use the sampler without pressuring myself. I know you're currently studying a PhD in instrument design. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on in that PhD? 
Well, for starters, the PhD is called Media and Arts Technology. So all the people doing this particular PhD research are actually researching the tools that artists use. Some are working in VR, some are working in AR, AI, and I'm working in new digital musical instrument design. And what my research tackles is how the size and the shape of instruments influences the composer and performer and can influence, therefore, their choices they make when they're performing and composing. And through doing user studies, I'm exploring how different aspects of instrument design governs these choices. Wow. I saw an instrument that you built at the V&A Digital Design Weekend. What was the name of that piece and could you describe it? The piece is called Instrument Cemetery and it's a new digital instrument that is made up from broken classical instruments. So it features two headstocks of classical guitars, the body of a harp type instrument, and these are all put together like a Frankenstein of an instrument and inside it has a microcomputer and I painted it to glow in UV light. So the way that it works is you can play the strings, the strings glow in UV light as well. It has this horror look about it and the microcomputer adds effects and changes the effects depending on how the instrument is moved around in space. So it's forever changing sounds. Some of them are quite gnarly. It's got a lot of feedbacky sounds or distortion. It's got some flange in there and they're all kind of changing parameters. But if you hold it still, it will save that final parameter and then you can play the strings. It's in a really discordant tuning. It's quite a gnarly instrument. But the whole thought behind this was when we play instruments and then someone like me, I I play so many different instruments. I'm always buying and selling instruments. But where are our instruments going when we're finished with them? So in this era of environmental responsibility, really, we need to, as artists, think about the tools that we're using and what environmental impact do they have when we're discarding them. And a lot of digital musical instruments are plastic boxes and companies are releasing more and more every year. And meanwhile, you have these classical instruments that are so beautiful and handcrafted that when I was sawing them up and bolting them together, people said, that's such a shame. And I said, this guitar had a broken neck. I got it for five pounds at a market. Yet people really valued these classical handcrafted instruments. So I just thought it was a really interesting way to to look at the classical traditional instruments versus the digital instruments and our relationships of the value of the materials and the lifespan of these instruments. Yeah. And I saw it getting a really fascinating response. Like kids were really getting into it and it was really, it's really stunning looking. I I think it, like, did it have have UV strings or, or am I completely making that up? Okay. So it had UV strings. What, So far in your instrument making process, what has been your favorite instrument so far? Or was it that piece? At the moment, I'm working on a large instrument called the prison bell. And it's the first time I've kind of gotten my idea of having a really large sculptural instrument on stage with me. I have done about four concerts with this instrument and it's always changing shape because in between each concert, I'll develop it a bit further and, you know, try out a different shape and see how that changes the instrument. So yeah, it's been really fun to kind of show my work in progress while I'm developing this concept. 
yeah, I, I don't know where it's going. That's the interesting thing about the prison bell. Every time I bring it out, it's different. It's just exciting in that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know you've lived in New York and you've lived in you've lived in various cities. Where have you lived? And how have has living in these cities affected your creativity? I'm originally from Brisbane, Australia. I lived in New York for about six years. I lived in Lyon in France for a couple of years, and now I've lived in London for five years. I do think all the cities where you live influence you as an artist, especially at the moment while you're there, you're getting amongst it. And New York was an amazing city to live in. There were so many talented, amazing people around. And it pushed me to develop my ideas further than I had previously been because my eyes had been open to what the possibility was of just taking everything further. Lyon is a beautiful city. It's quaint and there's the real wholesomeness to it. And I think being in a place like that, you take a little bit of time to breathe and listen to records and just live a little, sleep a little, eat a little. Uh... And then your relationship to music is a bit more hedonistic, perhaps. London, I mean, it's my home now. Yeah. I love London. London, oh my God, I've never been in a more supportive community. I love that there's this recognition of when, if you're doing something differently and you're taking a lot of time and effort in it, that really gets recognized and people contact you. It's a very vibrant city for being an artist and finding your people and I really appreciate that about London. That's amazing Leah we love having you here. What projects are you working on at the moment in our lockdown reality? (laughs) I'm working on a new album. Amazing. I'm writing a lot for my PhD but that's just how it happened. I started my PhD about three years ago so Yeah. But my new album is fun. I'm always trying to work with different technologies. So this time I have an eight track tape machine playing around with tape loops. I'm enjoying the physicality of it. I feel like I've been doing way too much screen time lately. So the physicality of tape loops and just the unknown nature of what's happening, what's going to come out of it. It's a very different process than my other work because my last album I really micromanaged every tiny little sample every tweak of every effect I don't know this has been an amazing time to just sort of try out different projects yeah I mean I've had to do a complete pivot shift I have I actually have a plan for this year I had to completely pivot everything and all of a sudden, some really incredible opportunities have opened up to me and I just never saw them coming. And I think much of my life has been, oh, here's a disaster. Like, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to make this work? You know, so in a sense, it's kind of business as, as usual. But I'm very conscious to the fact that we're in a really precarious and difficult time and you know, I'm seeing papers that I love shut down. I'm seeing venues that I've performed in closing. I'm seeing cultural centers that have been really supportive to me. They're letting go hundreds of staff members. And that's, you know, a very real reality. But on the other hand, I 
keep seeing opportunities, you know, and I, I think the fact that we have all of this communications technology, there's just more and more interesting things um, that I'm finding out about. And, but anyway, to finish this interview, who is your favorite woman in tech? They can be dead or alive. Oh, it's so hard, Bishy. Okay, so for example, one of the first women in tech I ever loved was Wendy Carlos. I picked up a Clockwork Orange in the U District of Seattle, um, random, <laughs> and I picked it up on vinyl, and it's one of my favorite records. I think, actually, I plan to be cremated, but lol, whatever. If I was to be put in a coffin, right, I would just want it there with me. I love that soundtrack that much. I think Laurie Anderson is my favorite woman in tech. She has such a diverse output from being a filmmaker to, you know, a pop star. To She's also an instrument designer. She designed a violin made of tape. And you play it with the tape head bow. Amazing. Yeah, in the 70s. And just for being a very prolific and really thought-provoking artist over such a long time, it's so inspiring to see someone still kicking ass and it just means we can keep doing this forever. Do you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And amen to that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Leah, and I will put up all of your links and everything in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bishy. It's always amazing chatting to you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Leah, for being such a fabulous guest this week. And thank you all for tuning in and subscribing. Thanks to The Rattle for all of their technical support on this podcast. You can find out more about Witch at Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.com forward slash Witch. You can go to Witch.com to find out news and updates and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.